I'm Janice Garrard from the Claiming Your Voice podcast. Tonight, I'm the guest host for the Adoptee Fire interview series. This is a part one of a two-part interview with Linnell Long, who is the founder of Inner Country Adoptees, which she founded in 1998. Linnell is a Vietnamese adoptee who resides in Australia and has built ICAV into an extensive worldwide network throughout the inner country adoptee community and has provided one of the first worldwide platforms for inner country adoptees to collaborate, share, and encourage one another regardless of their sending adoptive country. Linnell is the creator of the book, The Color of Time, and also has produced a series of educational videos for professionals. In 2019, Linnell was a guest presenter at the Hague Working Group to prevent and address illicit practices in intercountry adoption. Welcome, Linnell. Thank you so much for having me here. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for being a guest on uh, the Fireside Adoptee Series. Would you like to tell us your adoptee story? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was born in the Vietnam War. So 73, I was born. Uh, at that time, the Vietnam War hadn't ended. Um, and my adoptive parents, they actually flew to Vietnam to pick me up during the middle of that war um, and bring me back to Australia. Uh, I was only a five-month-old baby. And they had adopted me through a private um, adoption facilitator who was a lawyer working there. Um, and, and that's um, done as what we know these days as a proxy adoption. So um, they brought me back to Australia, um, had a bit of a rude shock, I think. They had, they had at that time two children of their own biologically. Um, and they had fostered a number of other children, Aboriginal Australians and white white Australians. Um, so they had extensive experience with kids. My mum was a school teacher. My dad was a farmer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess they weren't really prepared because in those days there was no education like what we have now for prospective parents. Um, and there certainly wasn't any awareness that, you know, you needed to keep your child connected to their culture and to help them explore their identity. I mean, all of these concepts have really only become widely known because people like me have been speaking up for many years um, and that educates, you know, the community and especially the professionals about what our journey's like. So I grew up in white Australia um, and that was quite a challenge at that time because I, I was raised in a rural area, so on a dairy farm of all places. Um, and it must be one of the few dairy farming like Asians in Sydney. <laughs> so it's quite a unique kind of upbringing. But, you know, it had many benefits. I grew up fresh air, beautiful countryside, um, roaming around, exploring nature, very connected to nature. Um, so, yeah, it was it was an interesting childhood. But as I grew up, um, I did struggle from as early as I remember. I struggled with not fitting in, not feeling like I belonged there, um, certainly because I, I stood out. And um, it was going out to places with my family that would often remind me that I didn't belong. You know, I remember going to restaurants and I'd be lined up with my family and when we'd get to the you know, the start of the queue, the person, the wait waitress person would look at me and go, and who do you belong to, dear? You know, it's it's such a kind of confronting question for a young kid. Um, you know, and my parents didn't really think to engage in having conversations about that. They would just, you know, kind of gloss over it and move on and it would never be discussed. So things like that, you know, just kind of compounded in my life and contributed to my feelings of isolation, aloneness, not feeling accepted that much because I was always kind of picked out that, you know, well, hey, you kind of don't belong here in white rural Australia. You know, where are you from? And always being questioned all those questions that us intercountry adoptees have about our origins. Where do you come from? You know, how, why, how did you get here? And of course I didn't have any answers because, um, my adoption was done pretty dodgy compared to, you know, the strict requirements these days. Um, and my parents actually never got any adoption paperwork or birth documentation about me at all. So I'm one of these kind of unusual cases where, you know, 40, I'm 49 now and I still do not have to this day any documentation from Vietnam except a passport that got me out of the country. 
about who I am or how I even came to be placed for adoption. Um, I've spent my life trying to chase down those questions, answers to those questions. But, um, yeah, so that's a little bit about kind of my early childhood and how I kind of arrived here in, in this country, Australia. Thank you for sharing that. While you were, um, you said like about the waitresses would come up and say, who do you belong to, dear? How did your parents address that? Did Were you introduced as this is our daughter or did they refer to you as their adopted daughter? They would always say, this is our adopted daughter. She's from Vietnam. They were, they were always proud of that. It's not like it was a shame. Um, but I, I, they just didn't think to kind of have those discussions with me to help me frame and understand why people ask these intrusive questions or to empower me that I could say no or or that, you know, we didn't have to share my private story every time, you know, people kind of asked. Um, like they never, I never saw them kind of respond in a way that put the, the questioner in a position to think, yeah, well, hey, maybe I shouldn't be asking such intrusive questions. They were always complying with the questions and, you know, it, it always meant that um, my status as an adopted person was always identified and, and talked openly about as if there were, you know, nothing wrong with that, but at the same time um, didn't really empower me to feel like I could control in any way the way that I was talked about. Yeah. It's almost as though when these people are asking the intrusive questions, I think they are really, truly curious, mm. but perhaps they don't always know the proper way to ask maybe, or, or maybe, maybe we're trying to give them too much uh, room in there. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, do like these that? days when people ask me the same questions, depending on my mood, I will choose various ways to answer. Sometimes I just get so sick and tired of these mm -hmm. questions. I'll just put people back in their place and I'll say, well, where do you come from? I've probably been here longer than you, mm -hmm. you know, because it's always about that. It's always about where do you come from and were you born here and do you belong here? And quite often the very people asking are people who have immigrated themselves much later than, than my arrival. Um, so, you know, it, sometimes I, I will choose to answer that way just because I get sick and tired of having intrusive questions. And other times, if I'm really feeling energetic and, you know, helpful, I will take the time to educate them. But that burden on adoptees to feel like we've got to educate people all the time can be quite tiresome. And quite often in those early stages of our journey, we don't have the language we don't, because we haven't figured it out for ourselves. We're still coming to terms with, well, what does it mean to be adopted? And, you know, so it can be quite confronting. So, yeah, these days I, I would suggest to parents, you know, that you come up with multiple ways and, and help empower your adoptee as to, well, how do they feel right now? And do they want to answer and get into this conversation? Or do they actually just want to brush it off or push people away? Because they should be feel if, you know, made to feel that that's okay. Um, we don't always have to be compliant um, and and making people, other people feel like their comfort comes before ours. That's a, that's an issue that I know that as an adoptee growing up, I always felt like I had to please everybody. I had to be this perfect adoptee. I had to perform and, and act a certain way and always be compliant and it took me many years to work out that that was actually because I'm adopted, because I feel this huge burden of gratitude that I've been saved because that's how people would often talk about my experience. And it took me a long time to be able to reframe that in a way that made me feel empowered about my own experience. Um, so, you know, it, it takes a long time to kind of work through these things. Um, but certainly in those early days as a child growing up in that family, we never had conversations that in any way empowered me or helped me feel that, you know, I, I could take the right to say, I'm not ready for your question. I don't want to have to answer that. So I think that sometimes we feel like it's an obligation, the obligation mm. that we have to explain to other people why we are there. Why yes, are we, why we don't up, fit? Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah. we don't fit their expectation of looking like, you know, this skin on the outside, but a completely when we speak, as soon as we speak, we have a voice that doesn't match, an accent that doesn't match their expectation of what this skin should look like. Um, and, and, yeah, yeah. So now as you have gone through these processes and learning how to find that empowerment that you can answer people the way that you feel like you want to answer mm -hmm. them. What has helped you come to, to this point? Yeah, that's a great question, but certainly um, building my network, connecting with other adoptees like yourself was a huge, huge thing that propelled my own journey. So when, uh, you know, you can hear that it, when I grew up as a child, I was very isolated alone. I never had any other people around me who mirrored me in any way, let alone shared a, a similar experience as a fellow inter-country adoptee. Um, so by the time I moved out of my family and came here to Sydney at the age of 19, I suddenly was surrounded by, um, you know, a city full of Asian-looking people. Sydney, if you haven't been here, is, you know, probably our most Asian city in the whole of Australia. And because we are so close geographically to Asia, we have a lot of immigration that comes here. So it's actually a very Asian city, unlike, you know, some of the experiences I know the Asian adoptees have in America where it's, it's you know, you have a lot of black people or a lot of white people but not a ton of Asian kind of people in one space. So for me, it was like a breath of relief. Uh, uh, yeah, a real a real feeling of, oh my God, I can relax here because I'm actually around people where I can just blend in. I don't get questioned all the time. Um, and, and it was a real relief because growing up in such a contrasting environment where only people around me were either Aboriginal, Black Aboriginals or white Caucasian Australians, um, I, I finally found a space where I really could fit. Uh, and that was a, an awesome relief. And then I could start to actually explore some of, well, what does being Asian even mean? And then when I met adoptees of colour for the first time, I was blown away because it was like, wow, being around people who actually speak my experience and can relate to the life that I've lived and can relate particularly to the niche that we have of being of a different race and being raised by a white family that is not our race. That whole niche area where there's so little knowledge about how do you navigate developing a healthy sense of identity when that's your reality. Um, it was just eye-opening for me to be surrounded by people like that. And because of that profound experience I had, that's why I ended up you know, creating this network that I have now, Intercountry Adoptee Voices, ICAV, because I knew the power that it had on me. I knew the influence. You know, I've spent the next 24 years surrounding myself with that community and building it because it's been such a positive impact on my life to be able to get to where we're talking about, to own my story to work through the challenges, the difficulties of, you know, how do we integrate our adoptive identity with our birth identity? How do we come to embrace the bits of both worlds that we want to make our sense of self? That's been such a massive journey and surrounding myself with fellows who do the same mm -hmm. has been just, a, it's been like I couldn't have done it without this community around me. I couldn't have done it in isolation. Um, and that's why, you know, I've been so inspired to recreate that experience for many other adoptees around the world where we can learn off each other, encourage each other, you know, and mirror each other and just have that space that only we understand. There is no other space like it, mm -hmm. you know, apart from with a fellow adoptee that really gets this journey. Yeah. It's, it's like living in, I think the... Um the literature says it's the third space. We live in a third yeah. space because we're not really this and we're not really this. So we're right here. And it's kind of like almost in a vacuum. Yes. We've created our own third space and that's mm -hmm. empowering in itself, you know, to when, when you get placed in a family where you don't quite feel you belong to be able to later go on and recreate your own sense of family, community, um, place of belonging, space of belonging, that's been hugely empowering for me. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like so many of my fellow adoptees around the world are like my brothers and sisters in Seoul because we travel this same journey 
and we can share and talk so on such a deep level that I could never talk to my adoptive family about. Because they, they don't understand. They don't, they don't understand that, it. They don't have that frame of reference. Yeah. Would you be able to talk to this topic? I hear some people in the adoptive community are really triggered by the word gratefulness, that you should be grateful to be adopted. Could you speak to that topic? Yeah. Yeah, I was very burdened with that feeling of that expectation that's not explicitly always said, sometimes it is, but generally because people will comment when they hear that you're adopted, they'll say, wow, you're so lucky, you know, you must have amazing parents. And, you know, they, even when I met one of the ministers in Australia, the government ministers, one of the very first things I, he said to me was, you know, wow, you know, you adoptees, you, 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 you're like our success stories for immigration. And I'm like, you know, there's this expectation that that we, because we've come from such a vulnerable position that we are so lucky and therefore we should be so grateful for the opportunity to be placed in amazing countries. In, and I know I say, yes, we are very grateful, but it's a heavy burden to kind of carry because it's not like we ever had a choice either. And you've got to weigh it up with, well, what have we lost? So that, that discussion about gratitude is a really heavy one for adoptees to try and um, deal with, um, come to terms with, because, yeah, on the one hand, we've gained so much, but what doesn't get said in that same conversation of gratefulness is, well, look at all the things you've lost. And it wasn't until I went to Vietnam on my very first trip back um, that I met a woman a very uh, way out in the Mekong Delta, which is quite regional and remote, and uh, in broken English, you know, she was the first person who ever said something to me that balanced out or contradicted the whole concept that I'd heard all my life from everybody else about how grateful, how lucky, how saved I've been. She actually said to me, wow, you've missed out on so much. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe it took me all these years, you know, like I was about 28 at the time or something. It's taken me 28 years to finally hear from one person in the world and it happens to be a, a Vietnamese woman, my own kin and country person, to actually say to me, you know, that I've missed out on so much by not being raised in my country, with my people, with my culture, with my language. And it was a profound moment and, and very healing because she validated that juggle that we have of our losses and our gains and how hard it is to weigh those up and to not allow that burden of gratefulness to overwhelm us to the point that we lose ourselves and don't manage to reclaim who our identity is. You know, it's, it's, it's that point I was making before about um, when people expect you to be so grateful and happy and lucky um, it means you forego your in-depth feelings of loss. Um, and so you bury it and it becomes, you know, it turns into all our mental health issues that we know that inter-country adoptees and adoptees in general struggle with compared to the non-adopted person. Um, they compound and build up into a massive mountain if it doesn't get supported. So, um, yeah, hopefully that explains a little. Mm -hmm. And I think what I hear coming from that is like it's good to recognize or I don't know if the word is good but it's okay to recognize that what we have lost as adoptees but it's okay also to be grateful so yes. there they can come together to balance out we don't have to yes. be just um, one one or the other yeah yes yeah and it's juggling those multiple complexities that we end up doing for our whole life you know, how to come to terms with our losses and gains and how to deal with our adoptive and our birth countries and families and cultures and languages and how do we how do we strive to find what we want for ourselves between both such contrasting kind of countries, cultures and peoples and, and who do we want to be? You know, that that's such a journey that only we can make as, as adoptees. Mm -hmm. Yes. So right now, Linnell, who do you want to be? in that space of being an adoptee? Um, I feel like I've already, I'm already where I want to be. I'm very happy and at peace with where I am. 
Um, I love the advocacy and the work that I do with fellow adoptees around the world. Um, I love the space I've created. Um, I'm very at peace with all of that. And I've come to terms with a lot of the, you know, really deep traumas that I've had in my life from from being relinquished and from being adopted. You know, I've had multiple traumas from from both of those major experiences. Um, it's taken me a long time to come to terms with all of that. You know, a lot of a lot of deep intensive therapy spent you know, thousands of dollars with some amazing therapists, but going through a whole heap of really crappy, shitty therapists as well who just didn't get it. Um, but, but you know, I really do believe that, you know, this this journey of healing that we go on and that we begin, for me, it doesn't end. Like I'm constantly still always working on myself to know myself better, to be true to myself. Um, but these days my journey is not a struggle like it used to be because I have found my balance, my peace, um, when you get to that place where you're no longer internally uh, conflicted anymore and you can say your truth without that internal conflict, that is such a liberating place to get to, you know, and I have that now and, you know, and it's been a long journey to get there and and I've had to, I'm still in that process because part of what I'm doing is taking, you know, legal action against my adoptive family for some of the wrongs they did to me in an adoption that was, you know, quite traumatic. Um, but that process itself has has been part of my journey to be liberated, to find my peace and to find this balance and to no longer be ashamed of things that I never should have been ashamed of. But as a victim, we end up carrying the perpetrator's shame. Um, so for me, it's been a really, really, you know, heavy, intense, long journey and I'm still on it and it still hasn't finished. Um, but I'm very much at peace now and I'm really in a good space. So I am where I want to be. Um, but, yeah, talking back to my 24 years ago self, you know, just like chalk and cheese. I, I was so insecure then. I was so didn't know who I was. Um, I, I just knew that, um, you know, when I first started ICAV, I just knew that, it was making such a positive impact on me to be around fellow adoptees that, you know, and, and I've never started my network with some grand plan. It's actually literally just been my own personal journey of discovering who I am and working through a lot of the traumas that has led me to have ICAV become what it is now. So, so it, it was certainly an organic. wasn't some grand plan. It was a very organic thing that I'd never set out to make this massive organisation and network of people. It's just evolved literally organically without any pre-thought from me, but just to learning along the way to be truer to myself the further I've come along the journey. Um, and the more true I am, the more things just evolve and flow beautifully. Yeah. Well, I would say that we celebrate that with you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. I certainly, I certainly, you know, I'm proud of, I'm proud of what I've made and what I've become. Um, yeah, I'm proud of the space that I can provide for others. And thank you for providing that space. Definitely. Would you be able to talk to us about or be willing to talk about your experience addressing the Hague Convention? Yeah, yeah. For the first um for the first 10 years of my journey in this, you know, I really didn't even know what the Hague Convention was. I had no interest. I was just, you know, simply connecting to adoptees and sharing stories and supporting each other and exploring our cultural identities and things like that. But over the years, I I kept running into adoptees who were really, really, you know, leaders in paving the way for us to become more politically active, you know. So some of those adoptees, mainly from Europe, um, because, you know, they really come from a human rights-based kind of perspective in Europe. And those adoptees, funnily enough, had joined my network very early on because I come from an IT background and I had my website up really early. Um, you know, and you knew knew how to utilize the power of the internet. Um, they actually joined into my network many, many years ago, which is why ICAV has always been open to adoptees from all over the world, regardless of their adopting or their sending country. So my connection with these adoptees, and one of the principles that I, I utilize in my network is I'll always try and personally get to know every adoptee who joins 
because I don't believe in a faceless, nameless kind of Facebook group that, you know, never gets to know anyone. Um, I personally vet every adoptee who comes in. I get to know them as much as they allow me to um, because I really believe that, you know, it's about connection and trust. And that is one of the, you know, two of the biggest issues in our life that we struggle with, connection and trust because of our relinquishment and because of those wounds that relinquishment leave. So when those adoptees from Europe and, and other countries around the world joined in, you know, I'd ask them, you know, what are you doing? What are you? And they would share with me about some of the work they do, they do. So I got to learn through these adoptees over years about the work that they were doing at the Hague Convention um, in places like the United Nations, where they're really standing up and advocating and fighting for our rights. I really did learn off other adoptees about what is our adoptee rights um, and about how the Hague Convention and some of those um, big forums where governments get together really, you know, haven't put adoptee rights as the core of, of the convention. So it took me many years to kind of learn and I'm still learning. I still don't propose, I still do not espouse to be the guru on Hague Convention or any of, you know, child's rights or any of this as relevant to intercountry adoption, but I'm still constantly learning all the time. But I'm having, I have that willingness to learn. Um, so I glean as much knowledge from all of my network and from people that I'm connecting to all over the world all the time. Um, and, you know, I guess when I saw other adoptees being able to stand up and go and, you know, observe at the Hague Convention as part of, um, as part of that forum, I really wanted to get there too because I've really felt over the years as I've become more and more involved in advocacy, especially here in Australia, as successful as we've been, um, then starting to do that in other countries, um, you know, I've really realised that there is something to be said for the power of having lived experience being consulted with at these levels, at these top levels where governments are making decisions on how to do policy legislation and practice that directly then flow down into how our adoptions are done on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wanted to make sure we got there to have that voice and to ensure that there is critical thinking in these forums and spaces so that governments are constantly reminded who they're doing this for. It's not for adoptive parents, shouldn't be. Um, it's, it's for us, the child that needs the, the care. Um, so it's been a really, really interesting journey to educate myself on what is the Hague Convention, what is the United Nations Child's Rights Charter, what is all the other conventions that go around to support um, what, what should be our rights um, and how to utilise those and how to help bring that knowledge back into adoptee-led spaces to help adoptee groups understand where these structures fit in with the work that they're doing when they want to start to get involved in advocacy. So um, ICAB has ended up becoming a bit of a hub where we try to provide that type of knowledge, exposure. You know, a lot of adoptees, for instance, who join into ICAB have never even heard about what the Hague Convention even is. So what we try and do in, in ICAB, you know, and what I have posted in there on an on a, um, ongoing basis where it's highlighted is, this is where you go if you want to learn about what the Hague Convention is and how it really intersects with our life and how you can become involved in engaging in it at this level. So that's really what ICAB does. It's, it's like a kind of like I try to ensure that it's more like a mentoring space where if adoptees want to learn about how to become advocates at this level, I'm always making myself available to have one-on-one -on -one chats, to have group chats or whatever, to try and encourage adoptees to get involved. The more we have adoptees involved at these levels, the absolute better. And I don't care personally whether they're pro-anti or anywhere on that spectrum of believing in adoption or not. I just think it's so important to have lived experience with all of its complexities, with all of its colours. I always describe us having a kaleidoscope of experiences. There is not one experience that captures all of us. But it is so important to have all of those range of voices inputting into the most highest level of policy practice and legislation because only then can they truly capture something that is much more aligned with what is in our best interests. So that's what I try to do in ICAV.
very intensive, um, <laughs> very intensive. <laughs> and I'm wondering then, since you have been an advocate, have you seen any changes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you would, and in Australia, yeah, in Australia, you know, it's been my hotbed for where I try and test it all out. We've been very successful here. You know, I mean, I'm actively consulted by government all the time, whether that be state or federal. Um, And in here, we have been successful to the point where we now have free psychological um, mental health counselling to all intercountry adoptees, regardless of any birth country they come from. We were the first country to really have that um, be offered um, and be free for intercountry adoptees. So that's a massive win in my eyes because I've known from the years that I've talked to adoptees that our biggest struggle is actually trying to find the right appropriate professional help to support us in our journey. We struggle. It's not a journey we can do usually on our own to figure out all of these complex issues that impact our lives. We do need professionals, mental health experts particularly, who are trained and understand, um, you know, the complex issues that we have, trauma being the baseline. If we don't have that, you know, so many of us end up really struggling and never really being able to reach our full potential at all. So um, that was one of the prime things that we advocated for here in Australia. The other successes we had, um, we had a free search and reunion service that was funded where all intercountry adoptees could also go to for search and reunion. Unfortunately, our government decided for for many reasons not to continue that service, but for two years it was done um, and we still continue to advocate for that to either be brought back in that form or a different form, whether that be through supporting us with DNA searching um, or whatever. Um, but definitely that searching and reunion, that ability to be able to look for our families of origin is a huge, is the second biggest priority that we try and advocate for. Um, so in Australia, we've had successes like that to the point where, you know, the Australian government funded the pro- two projects that I've ever been funded for, um, which was the book, The Colour of Time, which is actually a longitudinal look, probably the first in the world where we've attempted to actually look at our journey over time, significant time. So our first book, The Colour of Difference, was done, and that was actually the book that compelled me to start ICAV because I met adoptees through that book for the first time. Um, And that book captured our stories at that point in time. Fifteen years later, I did The Colour of Time, which followed half of the participants of the first book as to tell our stories, how had things changed, have they changed, What's gotten different? What's gotten better? And we look at that difference in how our journeys unravel over time because we, you and I know being adopted doesn't stop at that transaction when we got adopted. It goes on for our lifelong journey to to the day we die and even after we die to our next generations. You know, we've all now got children. Our children are going to start having children and us not knowing our histories impacts them and continues to go down through the giant, the, the, the generation. So we did that book and now we've also done, um, you know, which is a much needed thing, which I haven't seen in the world either, uh, which is why I put it forward, was our video resource to educate the prime people in the, in the longitudinal lifespan of our time, who were the three key professionals. They were teachers, doctors and mental health practitioners who we would regularly have contact with. But- if those practitioners did not know about the traumas and the complexities of intercountry adoption in particular, they would not really kind of have that spark go on and go, oh, I need to, you know, make sure this adopted person knows about XYZ resources and help them connect in. Um, so that's why we did that video series, which was also funded by our Australian government. So that's how much things have shifted here from years ago where the Australian government did not even consult with us, let alone listen to us, let alone fund us to do much needed resources that the community needs. I'm hoping that by sharing the successes of what we've had in Australia and by building up a constructive relationship with central authorities, the governments who facilitate intercountry adoption around the world, I'm hoping that by sharing the way in which we've worked with other adopted led groups and organisations around the world, that we give them a bit of a template that says, you know, you can get these successes in your country too. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of persistence. It takes a lot of good leadership, but it can be done. And that's what I'm hoping to inspire through ICAV throughout the world because it's so needed 
you know, adoptees need this support. Can't be understated. And I think adoption probably is not going away. No, let's be real. It's not going to go away. I just sat in the Hague meetings and I heard almost every country tell me when we had a discussion on plenary adoption, which removes your right to identity, which, you know, removes your birth parentage and gives you another adopted birth certificate that has your adoptive parents on it. When we sat and had a discussion about that type of adoption, which is how almost all of our adoptions are done versus simple adoption, which would honour our birth lineage and keep our birth family's names on our birth certificate as well as place our adoptive, the majority of all those countries said they just wanted to stick with doing plenary adoption because it's already the tried and tested way. It's the quickest route that they already know with the least amount of effort. They don't really care, you know, about the impacts for us because it's quick, convenient and works. And all they care about is the short term of what am I going to do with this child who needs help right now? They don't care about the long-term consequences, sadly, and they're not going to invest any money to actually do anything about it. So it's really discouraging to sit in those forums and hear the reality. So I know that adoption is not going to go anywhere in our lifetime. It will soon be, it will stay around. The best I think we can try and hope for is that they start to think about how they can modify the current plenary adoption to be more honouring of our need to know our origins. Um, and hopefully also too, as we've already seen though, the Hague Convention has worked in the sense that it has helped educate a lot of birth sending countries to really understand that inter-country adoption should be the last resort after you've looked at all domestic solutions. So hopefully countries, and we have seen that because countries are sending far less children now than they were 25 years ago. Um, the numbers have just declined by like 85%. So I believe, you know, because of the education that the Hague Convention provides about, you know, this framework of adoption, that it does really help educate countries about, you know, well, your, your, your most, your biggest responsibility actually is to find a domestic solution for your children, not to ship them off overseas. So um, I think it's been, you know, a little bit successful in that sense, even though it's also obliterated our right to identity, which I totally disagree with and speak up about. Um, but, you know, when you, when you deal with governments and you deal at this level, You've got to understand the constraints that they work with. Um, you've got to understand the, the the bureaucracy of the system, the mechanism that's in place. It's not one person making a decision. If it was that easy and that simple, it would have changed by now. You know, you're dealing with a massive government structures and you're dealing with the intertwining of um, complex legislation, you know, even just the concept of simple adoption for countries to even consider it changing to that legislation would mean that they also have to change immigration legislation to allow the recognition of a simple adoption so that the child is considered a permanent citizen of this adopting country. And that was their biggest barrier. So when I hear the realities of what they're facing, I can see why it's such a bigger than Ben Hur kind of, you know, concept of trying to change these things that look to us so simple, but actually in reality are quite cumbersome and, and very entrenched in all this archaic old legislation um, that's so hard to change for most countries. And I think that's pretty sad that uh, they are so tied to their processes and policies rather than trying to do really what is best. Yeah, for it is. It's, it is. It's disheartening sometimes to hear yes. how entrenched they are in it. So yeah. have, have you done a DNA test to find any of your family? I have. <laughs> yeah, I've done three, actually. Um, so, yeah, and I've had a professional genealogist look at my, um, my um, profiles and I've also had a media company who was actively searching for me for three years, um, which I've now stopped. But, um, yeah, I don't think we ever stop searching for our origins if we haven't found them yet. Um, but at least for me, I know that I've come to a place where I've spent, you know, up to 47 years searching and including DNA. Um, and I still haven't found my family. Um, and that's been very difficult because I, you know, couldn't find my original documentation. 
DNA is a life changer for that. For those of us who don't have anywhere to begin with paperwork or with paperwork that's fabricated and dodgy, um, DNA is a life changer. But the reality is, and the biggest barrier we face is that DNA is not always accessible in our birth countries. So we're literally finding each other as inter-country adoptees sent from one country to another, but we're not necessarily finding our birth families who can often be in countries where DNA technology is either not accepted or there are many barriers that they face, such as financial or even social, to overcome um, and to actually want to participate in doing a DNA test. So, for example, when I sit in these Hague meetings and I listen to what they tell us about our birth families, um, in many cases, these birth families have been shamed into feeling like they have no right to want to search for us. Um, it, it's quite sobering actually to realise the lengths the system of adoption has gone to to disempower our birth families from ever having a curiosity to wanting to find out about us in a simple way such as even taking a DNA test. Um, there's a lot of work to be done by us um, as a community to try and reach out our birth family communities and to let them know from us, them, us ourselves that we do want to find them, that it is a curiosity that we naturally grow up with and that we actually do want to reconnect with our countries. You know, so many of our country people, when you go back to your birth country, I don't know what your experience has been like, but when I go back to Vietnam, you know, some, some Vietnamese people are like, you know, why would you want to come back? Like, you've got this amazing country, Australia, aren't you just happy to just be there? Because in their eyes, that's heaven, you know, to come to some Western wealthy world and to live this, what they think is a luxurious life. So they often have these illusions of, of what our life is like and, and yeah, or they get told that, you know, you're, you're, you're so incapable of parenting your child, you know, your child's never going to want to know you. Or, or, you know, you don't have a right to because you you gave up your rights in signing or signing them away. So, yeah, the, there's a lot of barriers to our families actually ever undertaking a DNA test. Um, and that's a huge issue. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about money. <laughs> money. Is, the root of all evil in adoption. Is, uh, the root of all <laughs> evil. And it seems to be, uh, yeah the root of adoption mm. it definitely money. drives adoption mm -hmm. it definitely drives the system yeah when you think uh, of the birth country end right where our parents are often vulnerable unsupported lacking social welfare structures money is ultimately the reason why they give us up because they don't have the resources themselves to support us so if you could give them money or if you could give them those social welfare supports, maybe they'd never turn really to adoption. And what you've got to compare that to is to our white Western equivalent. So in Australia, for example, I know that the amount and the number of adoptions that are willingly given up each year by a, a, an Australian woman who has access to single mother pension and all of the supports that we get given in our countries, the handful of women who actively give up their children is so significantly small. You know, in Australia, it'd be less than 100 a year. Yet you compare that to the number of children being given up in our poorer countries, our birth countries, except for Korea, which is still quite rich, and China. Um, you know, there aren't those social structures to support single women who find themselves in whatever situation that's vulnerable where they have the option to consider to even keep their child. It's just not even an option usually. So money is at the root of most of our adoptions. And when you take a country like South Korea, where it is actually about the lack of support for women financially, so a lot of those single mothers are still giving up their children because they can be fired for having a job if they're a single unwed mother, they don't get enough in a pension. It's barely enough to even, you know, keep themselves, let alone a child who has heaps of, you know, needs, especially in those early years. Um, so, yeah, those women in, in a rich, wealthy country like South Korea are still giving up their children because ultimately of a lack of money. Um, and then when you flip that to the intermediaries, who are the intermediaries? 
Well, they are all the baby, baby brokers, the people in the middle who are making a ton of money off vulnerable women who are needing some form of crisis help and, and adoptions often posed as their only option versus the white Western or not, not always white these days. There's a lot of, you know, multiracial couples looking to adopt and intercountry adopt now, but they're in a white wealthy Western country. So they have the resources and the means. And so the middlemen take advantage of that and go, great, awesome. You know, here's my, my, my supply side, here's my demand side. I just have to be the middleman and facilitate the trade and no care factor for me because generally in the world, no consequences for the middleman, even if they do the wrong thing. So it's it's a great business if you're a business person looking for a great opportunity. And given that the average cost of an intercountry adoption is between 30000 to 70000 US. That's a lot of money for someone. So, you know, and if all they have to do is wave a few hundred dollars to a poor woman in Africa or in India or wherever, they're making a fortune. So, um, you know, money definitely is what distorts everything in intercountry adoption and really does create the whole business, the whole chain um, and and really is what is the unethical component of of you know what should be looking after children who are vulnerable and their and their mothers. So my question is, then how do we get that middleman stopped, or will mm. we ever be able to? And and is that where the Hague Convention comes in to say we're going to reform this? The Hague Convention has certainly tried to address it. I mean, that's the whole purpose. The Hague Convention actually arose was because of the sheer amount of trafficking that was actually happening through middlemen who were just, you know, unscrupulous uh, unscrupulous, and, and didn't, you know, no care factor. Um, and the Hague Convention has certainly done a lot to that. But where the Hague Convention fails, and, and this is something I've raised in some of our meetings, is that the money money exchange needs to be capped. There needs to be a certain level that we say these are the standards that are acceptable for how much should be exchanged to cover legal costs or, you know, fair costs for people doing fair work, such as, you know, getting adoption paperwork done. But it's excessive. And I've sat in these meetings and I've heard one country say, but our legal costs only cost this much and yet you're charging an adoptive parent this much. Like why is your cost so much more? You know, and it's a fair question and that can – and at the end of the day, these legal professionals are just eye-gouging. They're just taking because they can, because you've got demand that that's willing to pay it. So the Hague Convention tries to but fails very far by a long way because they refuse to cap and to put, um, you know, like some boundaries around what money should be exchanged um, yeah, so and that's a real problem. I mean, money should be just taken out of the equation altogether. Um, but but you know, it's it's hard to change a practice that's been around for eight decades. It's you know, people are making businesses off it, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. So yeah, it, it's such an uphill battle to kind of fight this big structure, and I can see why so many adoptees just don't go there because it's it's like David and Goliath. <laughs> and even if all of us adoptees were united and working together because we're so fragmented anyway in this fight, um, we would still be facing a David and Goliath fight, you know. And the problem is, you know, the, the complex part of it is, is that with all the trauma that we live as adoptees, it does and has meant that we are very fragmented as adoptee groups where we can't always work together well because the traumas get in the way. You know, we have lived all these traumas and it doesn't go away anytime soon. Um, and that's where, you know, really strong, good leadership really makes a difference, um, you know, to helping move through and around these problems that we face internally as adoptees, as adoptee groups, you know, as a network. Your words are very wise and... <laughs> You said a lot right there about people being fragmented and their capability to work together, um, even though they may want the same end goal. Because um, mm. I have witnessed that firsthand 
adoptee groups and people not being able to play nice together. And that's really painful, isn't it? Yes, it you know, is. it's really painful. Like there is nothing that hurts worse than when adoptees attack each other. And it's the worst because we are, we form such trust and connection with each other. And when that goes wrong, it triggers all of our primal wounds, <laughs> you know, and if you're not, a, if you're an adoptee and you're not aware of your primal wounds, and if you don't know how to soothe them, man, I've seen adoptees fly off in all directions, attacking, and it gets really, really ugly. So, yeah, it's one of our biggest difficulties. Linnell, thank you so much for doing this interview. And in part two, Greg Gentry will be with us to do um, moderate uh, a conversation with a live audience, I believe, on a YouTube feed. So, but in closing, what is the message that you would like to leave with our listeners? I would just like to say, you know, congratulations to your group, Fireside Adoptees, for, for doing what you're doing because it's it's in every adoptee having the initiative to connect with fellow adoptees and create these safe spaces where you can really talk about your truths. That is the spaces we need to help foster the growth of adoptees through our traumas. Without that, you don't ever get to advocacy. Advocacy only ever happens when you've, you're able to deal with trauma, okay? So I just say congratulations to what you're doing. We need more groups to do what you're doing, and this is where ICAV began as. And you just never know where your group's going to go and how far it will take things. So the message I leave is don't be afraid as an adoptee to step up to try and create a space. You know, I wasn't anyone special. I wasn't skilled in anything particularly but I gave it a shot and I've been willing to grow through the process. Um, and, and it's amazing where it can lead you. So I say, you know, keep that going um, because in replicating that, that is how we hopefully will get to a point where we get an en masse, massive number of people who are really all pushing for the same thing or at least similar things where we'll get true change. Yeah. Thank you, Linnell. And we're so glad that you were able to join. Uh, we'll put the link to your group in um, below our video when it's posted so that people can find you at innercountryadoptivevoices.com. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Take care. Thank you.